next will allow us to provide the necessary resources to relocate, expand, and improve our church home. It's been clear for months now that we've maxed out our space in our current facility. A new church home means greater opportunities to pursue those far from God in our community with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. Next is an investment in our future and in our friends. By relocating our church home and upgrading our facilities, we can increase our local ministry and invest in the lives of more people who need the hope and new life that only Jesus can offer them. It's time now for the people of Cross Point to step up. God has given us the incredible opportunity and privilege to participate in His kingdom work here in Northwest Atlanta, to see lives changed in ways that can only be explained by Him. But with that incredible privilege comes great responsibility. We are being asked now to respond to God's faithfulness and generosity by providing an unprecedented amount of resources so that our church can step into what God has for us next. Uh, My name is Terry. My name is TC. And uh, we actually came to Cross Point in 2014 around the summer. Um, We were invited by a co-worker, Crystal Burkhart. Um, She had invited me a couple of times to a couple of events that was going on at the church. Um, We went to the Ed Drop, took our son, Tristan, who's six at the time, took him to the Ed Drop. And from there, was like, we need to check it out. Right. We need to check out Cross Point. Yeah, and actually, I was... um kind of apprehensive. I haven't been attending church for a while and uh, I've always just had, you know, like issues with, uh, you know, just churches that probably wasn't as community oriented. So I was kind of like, my expectations of what we were going to experience were very, very low. I thought it was going to be like, you know, very churchy and kind of weird. But of course, I wanted to take my son to an egg drop, you know, for Easter and whatnot. But I was uh, pleasantly surprised with the environment and just how friendly and, uh, just how warm everybody was, and it was just awesome. And I and I remember saying to TC, I was like, really? Not a bad really, but like, really, seriously? This is like, this can't be real. They, this cannot be a reflection of what the church is like. So I was like, so we need to we need to go and attend the church and see what it's, what it, what it's, what it's about. And, of course, um, it, was, it was an awesome experience. It was awesome. Yes, it was. I mean, our whole family kind of just really took the cross point quickly. Um, our son Tristan immediately started grasping everything that he could. You know, it's like all that they were teaching, he was learning and spilling it out to us on a regular basis. So. Right, right. It was awesome. And uh, my daughter made a statement. Um, she was like, Dad. I was like, what? She was like, I actually understood the entire message, you know, like it really, and I want to come back. And and, um, and it's something that I want people to really know is that <clears throat> it's not just a blessing to us as a family and those individuals, but it really has caused us to be more intentional as far as inviting our family members and friends um, to the church. And we've done that. And, uh, and they've had the same experience with coming in the warm environment and the uh, teaching and the worship. Um, so that's been awesome. And uh and that's why, you know, the next initiative is so important to us um, as part of the church family is to be very intentional and uh, really prayerfully looking at, you know, how can we make those uh, sacrifices in order to um, do what God is calling us to do for the next initiative. And, 
we're just looking at you know praying first and having conversations about it and uh and, and it's, it's amazing because um god has worked through crosspoint through the children's ministry with tristan and he has been very motivated by their approach that the kids ministry has been teaching him as far as him you know bringing his coins in the competition <laughs> the, in the boy and girl competition yes. um so it's not just us by ourselves as parents um teaching but the support from the church is is really awesome so um I just look forward to see what God's going to do with it. Just look forward to what's to come. Hey, let's thank uh, Terry and TC for sharing their story with us. Love that family. Love that family. Uh, listen, before we dive into the message, just one quick mention. And I know if you've been here recently, you're sick of hearing about this. But if you haven't been here, you need to hear about it, okay? So if you'll just lean in for a moment and listen, that'd be awesome. You should have a reminder card that looks something like this in your seat. Uh, If you haven't seen this, go ahead and get it out. Get it in your hand. Even if you have seen it, um, get it out again because I don't want you to forget, all right? And if you've lost it, take it with you. But I, I need you to remember that next Sunday, we will not be having four gatherings as usual in this building. Next Sunday, which is Commitment Sunday, and we'll tell you more about that later in the morning, but we're having one gathering at 10.30 a.m. at the Clarence Brown Conference Center here in Cartersville, okay? So take this reminder card with you, put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day this week, make sure that this is on your calendar, and do not come here at 10 o'clock next week, because if you do, you will be by yourself, okay? Uh, good news is you'll still have time to make it over there, but, but uh, spare yourself that trouble. few things. Uh, get there early. We're going to open the conference center doors about 10 a.m., and you want to get there early because, as I've been saying, you're not going to come to church next week with a few hundred people. You're going to come to church next week with over 1,000 people, and it will be a different experience. You need to get there in enough time to park, to check kids in, to find a seat. So show up early. Secondly, help us spread the word. Talk to your friends, talk to your group, your serve team, Uh, share this on social media, if you will, this upcoming week. Just do whatever you need to do to make sure that everyone you know who's a part of Crosspoint knows. And if you've been inviting people to join you for church recently, invite them to join you for church there, not here. Lastly, we will be providing child care from birth through five years old. So if you have a kid that falls into that age range, we have them taken care of at the conference center. If you have an elementary age kid, we want you to bring your child with you into the gathering next Sunday. Look, as you just saw on this platform, our kids have been a part of this process with us. And so we want them to join you, their parents, in our gathering to be a part of that celebration and to, uh, to see what God does as we commit to what's next for our church, okay? Listen, if you don't know how to get to the conference center, we do have printed directions at our connection desk. So feel free to grab uh, some directions on your way out. Or if you're like me and you Google everything you don't know, just Google it, Clarence Brown, Cartersville, and you'll find directions online, okay? Look, look, last thing, don't miss next Sunday, okay? I promise, it will be a historic day in the life of our church, and you do not want to miss out, okay? All right, right, let's grab our Bibles, or if you have some kind of device with a Bible app, you can turn your Bibles on. Go to Nehemiah chapter 4 with me. Nehemiah chapter 4. For the past couple weeks, we've been in a series looking at a true story from the Old Testament, the story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's story is one of leadership. So in essence, it's a story about you and me. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, 
You are a leader. You may not see yourself as a leader, but you are one nonetheless. Listen, all it means to lead is to use the influence you've been given to impact your world. So that may mean you impacting your marriage, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, uh, this church, this community we find ourselves in. Like Nehemiah, every single one of us who's following Jesus has been called to that kind of leadership. Now, we've been learning that, that Nehemiah, he started out as a slave, right? A, a group of people called the Babylonians had conquered his nation, the nation of Judah, and in doing so, they tore down the majestic temple in the city that Solomon had built. They tore down the walls that surrounded the city. And they also forced many of the people living in the city into captivity in Babylon. Well, we pick up in Nehemiah's story, and it's 150 years later. The Persians are now in charge. They're the world leaders. They've defeated the Babylonians. And for some reason, they decided to be kind and compassionate to a group of the people living in slavery. And they let them go back home to Jerusalem. Well, our boy Nehemiah, unfortunately, wasn't one of those people. He was stuck living as a slave, serving the king. And I'm sure, like many of us, Nehemiah never thought in his slave days that God would call on him. He probably never considered himself to be a leader. He, he probably never thought for a moment that one day God would reach out and say, Nehemiah, I want to use you to change your world. But that's exactly what happened. One of Nehemiah's brothers traveled back to the city of Jerusalem to take in all that was going on there. And he saw that the people were suffering, they were in trouble, the walls were still in ruin. And so he comes back to Nehemiah and he shares the news. And upon hearing what's taken place, Nehemiah, he is devastated to the point that he goes to God in prayer and in fasting. And as he's praying and asking God, God, what should we do? God gives this slave a vision to change his world. And, and look, that's where leadership begins. It always begins with a vision. Now, we've been learning over the past couple of weeks that in order to see that God-given vision clearly, there are some different lenses we need to look through. Four to be exact. Here they are. If you're new, this is going to be new information. If you've been here, this is just review. But, but first, we have to look through the lens of what is, meaning that we have to be honest about our current situation, no matter how dire it may be. We have to be honest about the condition of our spiritual life, our marriage, our family, our church, our community, our nation, our world. We can't be people afraid of the truth. Secondly, we have to look through the lens of what should be. The question here is, what is God's ideal? And when you see what is and what should be, what, what God's ideal truly is, well, the gap that exists there serves as motivation for you to act and do something. The third lens is the lens of responsibility. Isn't it often true that when we see a problem in the world, we think to ourselves, you know, someone ought to do something about that. When God gives you a vision for your life, you start to realize that someone is me. Someone ought to do something, and it might as well be me. I, I'm responsible. And then lastly, we look through the lens of God's greatness. If you fail to see the greatness of God, here's what happens. You fixate on all your inabilities and on all your weaknesses and your vision for your life remains small. And as a result, you miss out on all that God wants to do in and through you. Listen, we've been talking a lot about vision the last couple of weeks. So I thought today I would give you a real-life practical example of this thing called vision. Four years ago, our team here at Crosspoint learned that there were hundreds of families in our own backyard who couldn't experience Christmas like many of us. They had no gifts to give, no toys to play with, no food to eat. 
Uh, Many of them didn't have coats for the winter season. They weren't driving to the mall to pay to have pictures made with Santa. And so upon learning about that, we started to ask the question, well, well, what's God's ideal? And we started saying, well, I think God's ideal is that every person in our community would walk through the Christmas season, a season of hope and joy, actually experiencing those things. And in light of that, we started seeing ourselves as responsible. We didn't sit back and go, you know, a church in our community should really do something about all the needs that exist here. And we looked at each other and we said, why don't we be that church? And that's when God gave us the vision for Hope for Christmas. You, you heard about it earlier, but every Christmas here at Cross Point, we serve over 250 families in our local community. That's over 800 children. Four years ago, we believed God was calling us to be the church that made sure these families had toys to play with, gifts to give, food to eat, coats to wear, pictures with Santa, and not like the old school, like fake beard kind of Santa, skinny guy. Like we bring in the mall kind of Santa, right? I mean, we do the real deal. And we believe that God was calling us to do this one, to make sure these families knew there was a church in their community who loved them, no strings attached. But more importantly, more importantly, we believe God was calling us to do it so that these families would know that he loves them, no strings attached. So much so that he sent his son Jesus into this world to change their lives, that they might experience unending hope and joy. Now here's what's crazy. When we wrestle with how to pull this off, how do we go about it? We sensed God leading us to ask the people of our church to give everything that these families might need. Every toy, every gift, every food item, every coat during a season that's typically marked by selfishness and consumerism. We also decided we need to ask our church to take a Saturday out of one of the busiest months of the year and come and serve these families. Now, man, when we came to that decision, it required us to fix our eyes on the greatness of God Look, I knew that we could never pull this off unless God moved on the hearts of our people and they caught the vision. And that's exactly what happened. God moved. And over the past four years, it's been unbelievable to see what we've done together. Our church has served hundreds of thousands of people outside our walls. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. We have literally given away hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food and stuff to make sure that families in our own backyard experience the hope and love of Jesus Christ during a season in which it's so desperately needed. All that's been our reality. Why? Because four years ago we saw what was, we saw what should be, we saw our responsibility, and most importantly, we saw the greatness of God. That's vision. Last week we also learned about the kind of person that God uses to accomplish uh, his burdens, his vision for their lives and, and for us together as his people. First, We said God uses that person who's willing to sit down and weep. It's that person who's willing to have their heart broken over what breaks his heart. I'll ask you what I asked you last Sunday. Does your heart break over what breaks the heart of God? Does your heart break over the fact that that right now outside of our walls there are broken, hopeless, hurting people who have no idea where to turn for hope and help? Does it break your heart that that there are people in our own community whose lives have been ravaged by addiction, abuse, abandonment? That right now, people outside of our walls, they're struggling not only to forgive themselves for what they've done, but to believe that God could ever forgive a person like them because of what they've done. Does that break your heart? It should. It should. Secondly, we learn that God uses a person who's willing to kneel down and pray. To not just see all the problems that exist and be brokenhearted, but but it's that person who goes to God and says, God, all these problems are too big for me to handle on my own. 
And so, God, I'm here on my knees. I'm here on my face seeking you as the answer. And then finally, we learn that it's a person who's willing to stand up and act. I'll just remind us today that a broken heart and a persistent prayer life is pointless if you are unwilling to get up off your spiritual backside and do something about what God has shown you. Now, here's the reality when you do that. When you move from weeping to praying to action, I've touched on this the past few weeks. We're going to talk about it in detail today. Here's what happens. Your decision to say yes to God's vision for your life results in change. Change always brings on pain. And anytime there's pain, look, don't miss it, there's opposition. I want to give you a picture of that reality today. So if you have your Bibles open in Nehemiah 4, let's start reading together in verse 1. All right, here we go. Now when Sanballat, that's a really weird name, isn't it, by the way? I haven't seen that one in any baby books lately. Uh, if you're about to be a new parent, here's a biblical name for you if you want to use it. I'm just saying. Now, when Sam Ballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves, speaking of the wall? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that. So as we learned last Sunday, Nehemiah, he's now back in the city of Jerusalem. He's gotten permission from the king to go. Uh, He he shows up to the city. Uh, He's got authority now. He's the governor of Judah. So he's got what he needs to pull off the project. The king's also given him access to his forest so that he has all the lumber he'll need to rebuild the wall to do the project. So he shows up. He investigates. He starts pulling people together. And as we just read, there's this guy named Sanballat. He's the governor of Samaria, and he is angry about what the Jewish people are trying to do. You see, he's one of the guys who has the most to lose if they're successful. He knows if they rebuild this wall around the city of Jerusalem, that he, as the governor of of Samaria, could could lose authority. And so this guy, he pulls together his people, his army. He starts mocking and criticizing Nehemiah and his workers. Further down in the passage, you learn that he starts plotting against them to pick a fight in order to stop their work from continuing. If you're taking notes, here's the takeaway. This is huge. Even if you don't have anything to write with, find something, put this somewhere. Here's what you need to know. Opposition always follows obedience. Always. Put it in your phone. Find a crayon, some lipstick. I I don't know what you got to do. Eyeliner. Write that somewhere where you're going to be reminded of it all the time. Opposition always follows obedience. If you decide that you're going to be that person that says yes to God's vision for your life, yes, God, I don't care what anybody else says, I'm going to do what you want me to do, here's my advice. You ready? Go ahead and paint a target on your back. Because when people shoot, that's where they're going to shoot. You see, when you say yes to God's vision for you, you're leading now. You're out in front. You're using influence to to change your world. You're taking a risk by being out there, and people are going to criticize you for it all day, every day. Now, I I just want to say we shouldn't be too surprised by this. Maybe some of us are going, wow, I had no idea that's what I was signing up for when I said yes to follow Jesus. shouldn't come as a surprise. Why? Because Jesus promised it would happen. In John 16, 33... He tells us as his followers, in this world, you'll have what? Trouble. I think oftentimes when we sign up to follow Jesus, we think that somehow opposition is going to magically disappear and life's going to be so easy. 
No, what's often true is that you sign up to follow Jesus, and that's when trouble begins. You say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to embrace humility, put sin to death. I'm going to practice grace and compassion. I'm going to give my life over to making you known to the world around me. And opposition comes your way. Criticism comes your way. I know it's hard for some of us to grasp, but when people see you moving closer to Jesus while they're moving further away from him, they get convicted by that and they start to criticize you. It's their defense mechanism. They'll start talking about all your past sins and mistakes in detail. They'll exaggerate your present sins and mistakes. If that's not enough, they'll even make up sins you hadn't even thought about committing, and they'll tell other people you're committing them. It's going to happen. Some of you, you're going to decide, I'm going to be a leader in my home. I'm going to use my influence to impact my family, my marriage. Every time you mess up in your home, somebody's going to look at you and call you a hypocrite. And you're going to wonder... Why even try if I can't be perfect? Some of you, you're going to decide, you know what, I'm going to use my influence to impact my workplace, my school, this community. And other people are going to look at you and they're going to question your motives. They're going to criticize you. Why? Because opposition always follows obedience, always. So knowing that to be true, here's the question we need to answer today. How in the world do we respond when opposition comes as a result of our obedience? Well, the good news is Nehemiah shows us he teaches us four responses uh, in, in uh, chapter 4 so that we ha- have greater clarity on, on how to walk in greater obedience, even in spite of opposition. So if you're taking notes, write this stuff down. First is this. We should respond with a return to prayer. Now, this just makes logical sense. I mean, think about it. P- uh, prayer is where God-given vision is born. Are you with me? Doesn't it make sense that we'd return to prayer when opposition comes our way? This is what Nehemiah did. I mean, he, he goes to God in the beginning as a slave. God, what should we do? God burdens him with a vision to change his world. He decides to stand up and act. Opposition comes his way. And then he goes back to where it all started. Prayer. Prayer. Church, we need to be really careful when opposition comes our way as a result of walking in obedience to God's vision for our lives. Here's why. Because oftentimes opposition comes with a face And opposition comes with a voice. And if we're not careful, we will focus in on that face and voice and we'll think to ourselves, I can beat him. I can beat her. I can overcome that person. And as long as that's your mindset, you miss something of critical importance. Here it is. That behind the visible enemy is an invisible enemy. Are you with me? And I don't care what you walked in the door thinking today, believing today. You cannot defeat that invisible enemy on your own. If you think you can, you're sadly mistaken. When opposition comes your way, you better get back on your knees and beg God for his strength, his power, and his encouragement because you'll never overcome that enemy by yourself, ever. I want to show you what Nehemiah prayed as he was being criticized. Some of us were going to love this. Check this out with me. Verse 4, if you have your Bibles open. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And he starts talking about his critics here. Look, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, can we just all agree that is not a very politically correct prayer, right? Some of us, we might even be thinking right now, well, James, whatever happened to that whole like love and pray for your enemies thing that Jesus talked about? 
didn't sound like Nehemiah knew much about that. Can I just stop and say, this is why I love the Bible. This book that I hold in my hand, it's so real, it's so raw, it's so honest. What we have in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 is not a model prayer, it's just an honest prayer. And if you've ever read this book, you know that it's full of honest prayers. Go read the Psalms on your own time. You'll find honest prayer after honest prayer. Oftentimes the psalm, uh, the psalmist, he'll start here. God, why have you forsaken us? God, why have you turned your back on me? Well, obviously God never turns his back on his people, but the psalmist started there because that's the way he felt. You know what this reminds us of? That we can be honest with God. We don't have to play church with him. We don't have to be polite with him. We can bring our raw, honest emotions to him, and he can handle it. Isn't that good news? And when we do that, here's what happens. We change. We change. Go back and read the Psalms. Here's what you'll find. That same psalmist who starts out, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back? He closes out those same Psalms by saying to God, God, I thank you for your faithfulness and steadfast love. It's almost like two people trapped in the same body. But in reality, the truth is, as he prayed through it, prayer almost served as therapy, if you will. He was able to process through what was going on inside of him with the help and the presence of God. Church, understanding this this thing about prayer, it is so important. You see, when people come against you with opposition unfairly, you're just trying to live in obedience, man. You're just trying to say yes to God. And people are coming after you. All kinds of emotions are going to rise up in you. One of those emotions is fear. Now, a lot of us, we don't like fear, so we tend to jump over to anger. We don't like to say to people, you scare me, so we'll say, I'm mad at you. That anger has to go somewhere. You can choose, if you're not careful, you can choose to turn that anger into revenge or retaliation. You lower yourself to your opponent's level and you start to repay evil for evil. Don't do that. You can also choose to repress your anger, to just bury it. And I'm telling you, you do that, it will become toxic to your soul. It will eat you alive. And before you know it, those emotions will come out of you at the most inappropriate times against the most inappropriate people. You know what you do with those emotions? You bring them before God, honestly, openly. You get real, you get raw in his presence and you pray. And as you lay those emotions out before God, God changes you and he frees you from what's holding you in captivity. That's first, you gotta get on your knees and beg for God's help. Secondly, when opposition comes your way as a result of obedience, the next response is is to revise your plan or to set out for a revision of plan. Nehemiah, he showed up to Jerusalem to build a wall. He had no idea that he'd find himself in the middle of a war. That should speak to some of us today. Some of you, you had no idea that in saying yes to God, obedience to him, that you were putting yourself in the middle of a war. But that's exactly what happens when you say yes to God. I don't know if you realize this, but there's a spiritual war going on around us all the time, every single day. If you're not doing anything for God, the enemy could care less about you. You get that, right? Why is anything uh, not happening in my life? Why am I not suffering? Why am I not being opposed? Are you walking in obedience? Again, people who walk in obedience, they experience opposition. It's a part of the Christian life. It's a part of following Jesus. Nehemiah said yes to God. He finds himself in the middle of a war. These people from Samaria, they are planning and plotting to attack him, the workers, to stop the work. 
And as a result, Nehemiah has to change his plan. He stops the work for a short time, and he puts swords, bows, spears, and armor in the hands of the people, and half of the people stand ready to fight while the other half work on the wall. You see, this moment in Nehemiah's story reminds us that a revision of plan is not a lack of faith. It's simply an acknowledgement of new information. There's a difference between a vision and a plan. When, when God burdens you with a vision for your life, that vision should not change. The plan is simply what you do today with the best information available to you. But when that information changes or your circumstances change, well, then oftentimes the plan has to change. There's a great picture of this in the scriptures. I would encourage you this week to get your Bibles out. Read the story on your own time. Acts chapter 16. There's a story of two guys named Paul and Silas. They're going to the city of Philippi to preach and to plant a church. Well, when they get there, they meet this little demon-possessed girl, and, uh, and she's being held in slavery by some owners, and she's making them money by fortune-telling. She's basically a psychic. Well, the Bible says that every day, Paul and Silas, they would pass this little girl, and, and she would just pester Paul and annoy Paul. One day, they're on their way to a prayer meeting, and Paul gets so tired of it that in his annoyance, he looks at this little girl, and he says, in the name of Jesus already, demon, come out of her, right? And, and, and it does. He sets this little girl free. Well, her owners aren't too happy about it. Like, Paul just took away their paycheck, right? And so these guys make up false charges against Paul and Silas. And these men who showed up to preach and plant a church now find themselves in prison. Their plans changed. Their, their circumstances changed. And so I can just hear the conversation going on in the jail that night. Because I know the end of the story. You're going to hear it in a moment. I can just hear them saying to each other, Hey, uh, I know we came here to plant a church. What if we started a prison ministry? And these guys in the middle of the night, they start singing and praising God. And God moves in power. And he frees these men. And the jailer who's in charge of these men, who's ready to end his life due to their escape, he meets Jesus, he and his whole family. And they become core members of the church that Paul would one day plant in Philippi along with that little demon-possessed girl that God set free. Again, when circumstances change, when information changes, oftentimes your plan has to change. Third, our third response when opposition comes is this. We recast the vision. We recast the vision. Nehemiah does this very thing for the people in verse 14. Read this with me. He looks at this group of people, the workers, who are having their lives threatened because of their obedience to God, their willingness to say yes. And Nehemiah says to them, uh, I looked and arose, I said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the opponents. Don't be afraid of the critics. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Someone in the room today, I believe, needs to remember that God is bigger than your critic. Come on, that'll preach all day. I don't know where y'all are at out there. God is bigger than your opponent. God is bigger than the trouble you're going through. Amen? You need to remember the Lord who's great and awesome, and you need to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah is saying to the people, this is about more than a wall. This is about your families. This is about your spouses. This is about your kids. This is about the future of our city. You do not give up. Do not give in. Do not walk in fear. Remember why we started. I'm telling you, man, you walk in obedience to God, opposition will come and you will get tired. You'll grow weary. There will be moments when you just want to give up. God, I'm done with this. I guarantee you there's going to be moments where you even think to yourself, wow, 
Life was a whole lot easier when I wasn't walking in obedience to God. Things were so much more comfortable when I was saying no to him. In those moments, here's what you do. You recast the vision to yourself. You remember why you started, why you said yes in the first place. And in some instances, an individual needs to stand before a group and do what Nehemiah did. He needs to say, remember the why here. Remember why we say said yes to God and, and why we started this work in the first place. I would also encourage you in those moments when you're wrestling with giving up to remember Jesus. He suffered the greatest opposition that anyone could ever suffer, and he did it for us. Don't ever forget, as you're being opposed and criticized, that Jesus came to this earth and he lived the perfect life that none of us have been able to live. He died a death, a brutal, hellish death that we all deserved in our place for our sins, suffering our punishment. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell for us so that we could become new people and know eternal life. Look, look, please don't miss this. If Jesus did nothing else for you your entire life, that should be enough for you to praise him and live for his honor and glory every single day. You recast the vision. And then lastly, when opposition comes your way, at some point, you got to restart the work. I told you a few moments ago that, that Nehemiah, he shut things down for a little while in order to revise the plan and to figure out how to move forward. But eventually he moved forward. Even though this group of people were threatening physical harm, violence, murder, war, he looked at his people and he said, all right, we've revised the plan. We remember why we're doing what we're doing. Let's get back to work. I just want to remind us today that, that we have a very real enemy. I said this earlier. His name is Satan. And he wants to stop every single one of us in this room from doing the work that God's called us to do. And he'll do anything in his power to pull it off. He does not want you to be the godly wife and husband God wants you to be. He doesn't want you to be that person at work that everybody knows is the joyful person who has peace regardless of circumstances that they can go to when their worlds are falling apart and say, help me figure this out. He doesn't want you to be the person that walks into your school, teenager, not worrying about what anybody else says about you, but, but only worrying about what God says and living for his glory and his namesake as you walk the hallways each day. He doesn't want you to be that neighbor in your neighborhood who's serving selflessly and giving of yourself so that people can know Jesus. He wants to stop that. He wants to shut you down. He wants you to get so distracted by his opposition that you forget about God's vision. But we cannot be distracted we can't forget why we started what we started, why we said yes to God in the first place. And we cannot forget about the one who's called us. We pray, we get on our knees, and we beg for God's help. We revise our plan if necessary. We recast the vision to ourselves and others. And then instead of living in fear, we put our heads down. And we remember that our God is greater than our critics and our opponents. And we get back to work for his glory and for the good of people. As Paul said in Romans 8, 31, look. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? I think some of us walked in the door today. We need to hear this. I didn't plan on saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think some of us walked in the door today asking this question. Is God against me? I started showing up to this place. I started trying to serve and, and change my life and, and, and let other people know about what God was doing in me. I tried the whole group thing. I, I did all this stuff that you asked me to do, and life got harder. I don't ever want to be the church that sells Jesus to you without all the fine print. So I'm trying to tell you, following Jesus is hard at times. You're going to be opposed at times. People are going to want to shut you down, and the enemy wants to destroy your life. 
not only to rob you of what God has for you, but to rob God of, of glory and honor that he deserves from you. You with me? Look at me. God is for you. God is on your side. God is the only one who can pull you through the opposition and criticism that some of you in the room are facing. You want help in the time of trouble? Don't run from the one who can pull you out of trouble. Run to him. He's on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, as we close, I need to talk to you for just a moment about next Sunday, and then we're going to pray. If you haven't already received one of these envelopes from me, uh, this envelope I'm holding in my hand, you should get one this week in the mail with a letter from me. If you don't get one, the only reason you're not going to get one is because we don't have your right mailing address. So if you want one, make sure we have that, or we have these available at the connection desk today. Stop and grab one on your way out. Over the last several months, our elders, our pastors, our leadership team, several of the leaders in our church, we have been praying relentlessly about what to do to solve our space issues here on Sundays. And as we have pressed into God for months now, we have since God leading us, as I said earlier, to relocate our church family to a larger facility so that we can continue to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus. I will tell you, as we have made those plans, opposition has come. Um, at some point, I'll probably tell you about the opposition that I have faced personally in this season. It's been a really weird season for me. Uh, I'll tell you about it sometime, and I'll tell you what I've learned and what God's done in my life, and, and I hope that it'll help some of you. But we've experienced opposition. We've had to revise plans. We've had to get on our knees in prayer time and time again. At times, we've had to recast a vision to ourselves. Why are we doing this? We've started in the past couple months casting vision to you, and now it's time to get to work. And the work begins with us together as a church family saying yes to God by giving generously and sacrificially toward our future. And so next Sunday, I'm asking everybody who belongs to Crosspoint, if this isn't your church or, or you're new here, you don't need to do anything. But if this is your church, if these are your people, I'm asking you next Sunday to bring this envelope back with you to the Clarence Brown Conference Center, 10.30 a.m., and to place your one-time gift inside of it. And I've been asking you to pray about this the whole time, but, but this week, would you pray about joining my family in giving the largest one-time gift you've ever made to Crosspoint? We did it. And so that's why I have no reservation about asking anybody else to do it. If you're able to do that, would you pray about that when you consider it? Put your one-time gift in here that's over and above your regular giving, and then write in that very top box the total of your one-time gift. Uh, in the next box, I want you to tell us what you would be willing to give toward our next initiative for the next three years, again, over and above your one-time gift, over and above your regular giving? What would you be willing to give for the next three years, sacrificially, so that we can continue to say yes to God concerning his vision for our church? And then in the bottom box, just go ahead and, and total it up there and, and, uh, and bring it back with you next Sunday for Commitment Sunday, okay? If for some reason you can't be here next Sunday, I want to encourage you, this is a postage-paid business reply envelope, so I want to encourage you to drop this in the mail this upcoming week because I don't want you to miss out on the success of next Sunday, okay? I want you to be a part. If God has given you a little, give a little. If God has given you a lot, then according to Jesus, much is required of you. I truly believe that God knew this day was coming for our church and he has sovereignly placed his resources in our hands that his vision for us might be realized, might be accomplished. 
if we can't let go of our resources according to how God leads, we don't have a hold of our resources. Our resources have a hold of us. But we're going to pray right now. We're just going to thank God for his help in times of opposition. And we're also going to pray and ask God to help us let go of what he's calling us to let go of so that we can continue to be a part of what he's doing. Will you join me in that? God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that belongs to us because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Thank you that, God, in times of opposition, God, we are not alone. Some of us need help to remember that today. God, help us to know that you're with us, that you're for us. Give us peace. God, do something in our lives today that, that would transform us. God, we're begging you for that. God, I'm praying for next week. I'm praying, God, that, that over the next several days, God, if, if we're not clear on, on how you're calling us to be a part of the future of this church, God, that you'd make it so clear. Reveal it to us. God, and help us remember this was never about us. Do not let a single individual in this room, including me, God, put ourselves at the center of what's happening here. This is about you, and this is about your pursuit of people who don't know you. God, help us to be about your work. God, I cannot wait to see what you have in store for us, your people. I truly believe, God, that, that what you have for us, God, it's, it's the best, and I believe our best days are in front of us. So, God, don't let us miss out. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.